I just thank you for this morning. Once again, as we uh, take some time uh, to get into your word, I pray that it would speak loud and clear, that you would help us. Uh, Lord, I've got a lot to say that's in my notes, but Lord, I don't want one point uh, to be spoken unless it's your heart to do so. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak loud and clear, and Lord, that hearts would be open in Jesus' wonderful name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, 1 Timothy, if you haven't been tracking with us, is an incredible letter from the Apostle Paul written to Timothy, who was a young pastor, and he was pastoring in the town of Ephesus. And it was not an easy assignment by any stretch of the imagination. To say that the church in Ephesus was in turmoil or in trouble or they were dealing with false doctrine or leaders that were out of order would be an understatement. There was a lot of things happening, a lot of things that Timothy needed to be encouraged. And Timothy, no doubt, was struggling. I put in, in, in my mind Timothy asking questions like, what am I doing here? Uh, am I even making a difference? Um, you've heard the phrase, uh, the grass is greener on the other side. How many of you know, heard that before? I think Timothy was probably saying, the grass is greener anywhere else. And uh, that's kind of the feeling you get when you study the background, the history of where Timothy was. And so this letter would have been an incredible encouragement to Timothy. And I want to remind you that it was a letter. It was personal. And again, we're going to see that this morning, that these words initially were written from the hands of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Now, we understand it's the Word of God, and there's truth for us. But I want us, as we look at this first, to say, okay, who was Timothy? And in verses 6 through 16, what we're going to see here in these next few verses is a wonderful summary of what ministry should look like. Now, these were not things that Timothy didn't know, not things that Timothy had not heard before, but what Paul is addressing here is the fact that he was not seeing some of these things displayed within the church. And the key verse for this morning is in verse 6. You can uh, look at it there. Chapter 4, verse 6 of 1 Timothy. It says, You will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. And before we read the whole context, I want to just break this down. The word minister there is the word diaconus, which is the word that we would translate servant or deacon or pastor. The word good there is kalos, which is, uh, means noble or admirable, or this idea of excellence, to excel beyond the normal. And so you will be an excellent, admirable, noble, servant, pastor. And this is written to Timothy, who was not like the diaconus in chapter 3, where Pastor Pete pre preached uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, but he was a pastor, an apostolic delegate under Paul, but he was indeed a servant. And so as we read this, we want to keep that in mind, and we'll see a list of commitments here and lifestyle ideas, patterns that would be displayed in an excellent pastor, a pastor that excels. What defines such a pastor? What marks would have been seen or would be seen? And that is what we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
And what I'd like you to do is to stand to honor God's word. And we're going to read the entire chapter because there's context before. And then, uh, and then we'll go through and, uh, and then we'll be on our way. Let's look what it says. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is concentrated, consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. Now this is new material. Verse 6, let's look at it. If you point these things out to these brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teachings that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive, and we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, but set an example of the believers in speech and in life and in love and in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture and preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through the prophetic message when the body of elders laid on their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Pre, uh, persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Everyone go, Whew. There's a lot of information here, and in the next 30 minutes, I'm going to do my very best to get our minds around this, and then not only to understand God's Word, but then to uh, how do we apply this to our own lives. And uh, with that, I'm going to ask that you be seated, and what I, we want to do, we want to look at several things that an excellent pastor would display, and the first is found in verse 6, and the first thing I would say, it says there, if... You point these things out to the brothers. What is he talking about? He's talking about what was in verses 1 through 5. What I would say, the first thing, is an excellent pastor warns people of error, false doctrine. If you point these things out, when you point out error, you become a noble servant of Jesus Christ. We see the, first, or the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 and in 18, that we're not to be uh, uh, strangled up in false or strange doctrines or myths or endless genealogies. Some were doing that at Ephesus. No fruitful discussions should be had. Verse 18, Paul encourages or commands Timothy to keep the faith, to fight the good fight. The good fight was to hold on to strong doctrine. And Paul understood the dangers of false doctrine. He understood the dangers of those lies. And so in verse 6, it's, a, it's really a gentle term, but the idea is that a pastor must warn his people when it is appropriate. And you do this with care, 
not with argument or with attitude, but with humility, not with judgmentalism or being unloving or being mean, but a pastor must be discerning himself and then teaches people how to be discerning to warn people of error. And the problem today, quite frankly, we won't take the time to really dig into it. We looked at this last time we were together. But uh, many pastors water down the truth. They don't bring any substance on a weekly basis. They, they create sermonettes. And uh, I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, this pastor, they may not be a great teacher, but they've got a real shepherd's heart or got a pastor's heart, right? Well, shepherds defend against wolves. They don't just pet the sheep. I mean, that's, that's one thing. I mean, it's nice to be nice to the sheep. But there is a sense that you would need to be warning, and a good minister warns the flock. The second thing I see in verse 6 is that an excellent pastor, let's look at it, is an expert student of Scripture. So it's as if you uh, warn, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister brought up in the truths of the faith and good teaching that you have followed. The idea here is that you're a student, that a good pastor is always learning. If any of you thought that I've, I have arrived or that Pastor Pale had arrived or uh, Pete or Bobby, I mean, you've you know, grossly mistaken. We are always learning. And what's interesting is you look over the history, and maybe in the last two or three hundred years, you think of some you know, stellar pastors, students of the Word, and, and when, what I want you to see is they were students of the Bible, and because they were students of the Bible, they had something to say, and they became pastors. Sadly, that is not necessarily the case today. Today, pastors are encouraged first and foremost in many circles to be communicators, or they are administrators. Or in some cases, I would say they are entertainers. But Paul reminds Timothy that Timothy must constantly be nourished in the truth. Constantly feeding on the Word of God. Sound doctrine comes from Scripture, period. And the idea here is that your entire life, you are mastering one book as a pastor. And it's this book and no other. It's not church growth conferences or church growth books. It's the Word of God. I started my college uh, time in university at William Tyndale Bible College in Detroit area. How many have heard of William Tyndale? Uh, at least the name, maybe. And Tyndale Publishing in Grand Rapids, right? Well, do you, did you know that William Tyndale, he was in prison shortly before he was martyred for his faith in 1536? He wrote the governor-in-chief asking for some considerations because he was suffering so greatly in prison. And when I found this, I was just like, wow, I never knew this. But he said this. He said, please, sir, send me a warmer cap, a candle, and a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. But above all, he wrote, or he said, I beseech and entreat your clemency, which I have no idea what that means, to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar, my Hebrew dictionary, that I may spend time with them in study. This guy had lived a faithful life, William Tyndale, had done incredible things for the Lord, and right before he was about, his life was going to be taken for, the, for his love for Jesus, 
he's still asking for his scripture. Isn't that incredible? I love that. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, I want you to turn there with me, and you may want to highlight this in your Bible. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. And you know, and I'm not trying to be critical this morning, but there are pastors that I know, and pastors that you may know from a national level to even here on the lakeshore that have lost their edge, that may not be as fresh as they once were. And I think that the, sometimes the primary reason is that they're not in the Word of God. An excellent pastor is an excellent student of Scripture, period. In verse 7, we see that an excellent pastor avoids unholy teaching. Look what it says back in, uh, just hold your place in uh, 1 Timothy. We're going to go back there, and then there's some other places we'll look as well. But in verse 7, it says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Fables only for old women. Old senile, senile women is kind of what it says. And uh, have nothing to do with them. Refuse them. And it's very strong language here in the Greek. He says, excuse yourself from them. Anything that's non-sacred or unholy or profane or there's myths or fables, anything that is opposing the truth, stay away from it. That's the opposite of what Psalm 1 says, is to, that we are to find ourselves and to, uh, to walk in the counsel, of, not in the, of the counsel of the wicked, but, but we are to be delighting in the law of the Lord. It says that we're not to be sitting in the seat of mockers. The idea there is that, or the scoffers, the idea is that we must be careful who we associate with, what we allow into our minds. And can I say this boldly, that not everything in the Christian bookstore shelf is good doctrine? We have to be careful. It may be popular, yes, but is it grounded in the truth? Not always. And the key is we need to guard our minds, and we need to keep the Word as the focus. Someone said, well, uh, well isn't that just you know, being really one-dimensional? And I say, maybe, I don't know, but I know this. But to, to be a good minister of the gospel, you will avoid unholy teaching. Verse 7, 8, and 9, an excellent pastor is disciplined in personal godliness. We won't spend as much time here, um, but we, because Pastor Pete preached on this in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and the idea here uh, in this is you know, to train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding on promise for both the present and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full attention. And the idea is that you cannot produce fruit without being disciplined. And it's spiritual disciplines, obviously, in this context. Godliness is profitable for all things, for the present and for the future. And because of that, we've got to be disciplining ourselves. That word exercise is, comes from the word that we would uh, get gymnastics, and it implies vigor and strenuous training. Self-denying discipline is what it's talking about. And like Peter says in 1 Peter, that we need to beat our bodies into submission so that when you preach, you will not be disqualified. And the history here is that the culture that Timothy was in, that Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, they were full 
of uh, image-bearing people, uh, body beautiful. They were working on their physique very much like our culture today. Uh, Paul plays off that cultural reality and says, look, you need to train to be godly. And he compares the physical training with the spiritual training, which if you know me at all, that was, you know, perks my interest, that if you're going to train at all, don't neglect the spiritual. Because, because physical training has some benefit, but spiritual training lasts forever. It doesn't mean not to exercise. Now, some people would say, man, you know, it's, a, it's really minimizing physical training. I don't think that's it at all. The idea, though, is that physical training, it does not last. There's a brief time of benefit on this side of eternity. And I would say that even for me, uh, recently, that eight weeks where I had, you know, I was in the emergency for my leg, and then I had vocal surgery, and then I had the shingles. And I had been, previous to that, I had been training to do an Ironman and uh, putting long hours in and running and biking. And I was going to start in January, start the swim portion. And in June of 2016, that was the plan. And I ended up eight weeks without exercising, not one bit. I was like flat on my back, literally. And, uh, and I, it, was, it was very, very difficult. And when I started running again, I mean, it hurt again. <laughs> and all of that physical training that I had, all that base, it was like, uh, drifting away. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I've kind of reprioritized and, uh, and have a different plan at this point. But Paul says here that if you have to choose, spend more time on the spiritual. And you say, why? Because it carries on to eternity. One pastor said in context with uh, studying this, he says, we need to learn to do more knee bends at the altar in prayer <laughs> and uh, not so much just for our quadriceps all right <laughs> and, and uh, that is good and then in verse 9 it's an axiom there uh, we've seen this already it's something that they knew and uh, i want you to turn to to first corinthians uh, chapter 9 and uh, it's important that we know that paul was not just saying these things to timothy but he was living these things and in first corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 um, through 27 look what it says he says do you not know that in a race all the racers run or all the runners run but only one gets the prize he says run in a way to get the prize and he's talking spiritually here everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training they do not get a, to a crown that will last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever spiritually. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That's the idea. That's the intensity here when you read this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now in verse 10, we see another thing. That an excellent pastor not only is, um, is all these previous, but is committed to hard work. Hard work, labor, and striving to a point of exhaustion or agonizing. In the Greek, it has this idea of sweat labor. And Paul says, essentially, ministry is relentless. It's hard. And I would just say, until you've done it, you probably don't understand the demands. 
once in a while, and it, it's less these days. But, um, you know, people will say, well, oh, you're a pastor. You only work one day a week, right? And uh, some of you have said that to me. I'm not pointing anybody out. <laughs> and I get that, all right? And I, and I understand that. But the demands of ministry in reality are relentless, right? A true shepherding at its highest level is exhausting, If you are not willing to do hard work, then don't be a pastor. And you say, well, what about balancing family and ministry? Yes, and I understand that, and I'm learning that even in a greater fashion in my life and in my family. But when it comes to hard work, there is no excuse not to be committed to what you are called to do. And by the way, I don't believe for a second that hard work stresses people out. It's other inner anxiety and expectations. And I think that Paul knew this, and he encouraged uh, Timothy in this. He's saying, look, you need to work hard. I want to show a couple verses. You may want to write these down. I'm going to flip through these quick. But Paul knew this. He was an example in this of hard work. Look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 12. It says, we work hard uh, with our own hands. 1 uh, Corinthians 15, verse 10 I should have just wrote these out, and maybe I will in between service. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 2 Corinthians, keep on flipping pages over, and 2 Corinthians, or write it down, you can look at it later, verse, chapter 6, verse 5, says this, in beatings and imprisonments and riots, in hard work, everyone say, hard work. Uh, chapter 11, verses 23, we see this. Are, uh, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. He says, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, so on and so forth. The idea is that he's, he, he has gone through it. Verse 27, I have labored and toiled and have gone and often gone without sleep. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 9 and 2 Thessalonians said that they, he would work night and day. And then we come back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Hopefully your finger was still there. And we see it again. Let's look at it. It says, for this we labor, we work, and we strive. The fact is, is that ministry is difficult. And I'll say it's difficult, but I love it. You say, why is it difficult? It's difficult because of the opposition from the enemy. Because what's at stake is eternal consequences. And because of that, a pastor must be committed to work hard. Verse 11, let's keep on going. A good minister teaches with authority. The idea here in verse 11 is, says command and teach these things. It's direct, it's an order, it's a charge. The idea here is to keep commanding, to keep teaching. You say, well, what things do we teach? We teach divine truth. We teach the Word of God. And I just can imagine Timothy receiving this letter and feeling after he reads this, saying, no, I can do this. Or Paul behind the scenes saying, Timothy, you can do it. You might be young. And we're going to see that in a second but you're, you can get there. You can do it. And you know what's interesting? When it, you teach with authority, 
with that sort of intensity, there are a lot of pastors that are backing away from that. And maybe they call their Sunday morning message a conversation with no command to repent or to believe or to bow down or to teach what Jesus had taught. I believe preaching and teaching has to have passion behind it, and it should include commands and charges and calls and orders and directives. And that's one of the reasons why we value altar time, to bring people to the altar, to pray and to find their, to take their needs to the Lord. And we, because there should be response as well. Within the pastoral epistles, this was a big deal. And we call the pastoral epistles 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And just I want to give you a quick idea here that Paul over and over was saying to command certain things for Timothy to stand up and say, this is the way it is. Let's look at it. 1st Timothy 1.3 says this, I urge you, stay there, um, and then to, to, to not teach false doctrines, uh, and I com- I'm sorry, that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Chapter 5, verse 7, if you flip over there, uh, verse 7 says, Give the people these instructions. The idea, same, same idea, command them so that no one may be open to blame. Chapter 6, verse 17 says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. And then in Titus, one more place, Titus chapter 2, verse 15, we see these then are the things you should teach. And that's the same word, to command, to encourage and rebuke with all authority. A pastor should speak with authority from the pulpit, I believe. And if that's the case, a pastor better resolve in his own heart and mind that the Word of God is ultimate truth. Amen? You've got to settle that first. And then you've got to study it to know what it says. And then you've got to believe that God wants you to communicate it. And then you've got to believe that the people need it. And if all of those things come together, you should stand before the people and preach with authority. Amen? Amen. Verse 12, let's continue, is to set an example. An excellent pastor models spiritual virtues. I really love this verse. It's uh, one of my favorite. It, and uh, um, in, this, in this passage, uh, it, it says, Do not let anyone look down on you because of your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and in purity. And we could spend a whole entire sermon on just that verse. We're not going to today. But the idea is that the life behind the message is important. An exemplary life is a pastor's most reliable weapon. It makes things believable. It causes critics to disappear. Thomas Fuller, a Puritan in the 1800s, said this, Though the words of wise of the wise be as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, yet their examples are the hammer to drive the nails in to take a deeper hold. It's not just what we say, it's our example that really matter, matters. And really, it's, I believe it speaks to longevity as well. And again, Paul here is encouraging Timothy, stick with it, Timothy. Don't give up. 
and be solid in your testimony. Verse 13, let's continue. A good minister maintains a thoroughly biblical ministry. Uh, let's look what it says there in verse 13. I come, devote yourselves uh, to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. The idea here is to read Scripture, to explain Scripture, to preach it, to teach it, and then apply the truth. John MacArthur was asked once, what is the key to great preaching? And I don't know, we're not going to debate whether he was a good preacher or not, but um, I like some of his work. And, but he says this, he said, you got to keep your rear end in the chair until you finish the work <laughs> and study. And he says, you only come out when you have something to say rooted in God's word. Our ministry should be rooted, should be thoroughly biblical uh, in every single way. Verse 14, and we've got to keep on moving here. Verse 14 says this, says, do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through the prophetic message when the body of elder laid on their hands. The idea here is an excellent pastor uses spiritual gifts. I wish we had time. Again, we could take a whole message on this. The idea is that an excellent minister has endurance because he or she does not neglect what the Holy Spirit has given and affirmed and confirmed in their lives. Faithful to use gifts, the calling, not to neglect the gifts. I wish we could spend time on this. The prophetic in, this, in preaching week in and week out is absolutely critical words of knowledge and wisdom, faith, healing, miraculous powers, right? Distinguishing between spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. All these spiritual gifts should be active as the Lord leads and a, and a strong pastor understands that. Let's look at verse 15. He continues, be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them. An excellent pastor is passionate regarding the ministry diligent, giving yourself wholly to them, not in a fake way, but you say, boy, this is my life. It's not my job. This is where I live, where I move, and where I have my being as a pastor. And it was interesting, I was uh, sharing with someone this week, I was in his office, and we we're talking about if it didn't work out in ministry, what would we do? And, uh, and I'm like, I don't know, I'd probably sell cars, because I used to have a little car business on the side. And, uh, but the, really, the reality is that if you're called, you can't see yourself being happy in anything other than preaching the word. You wouldn't be satisfied with anything else. In fact, we tell people that are curious about their calling uh, in their lives, about being in ministry, they may feel called to be a pastor. And what we would say, and I've said this many, many times, but if you can imagine yourself doing anything else and being happy, then do that. But when you pray and you can't get it off your mind and you can't imagine doing anything else other than pastoring, then that's a good sign that you're called and that God, he's going to equip you. There's no plan B, in other words. And if that's the case, then be passionate about that. Amen? Amen. So we see that. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves holy. Be passionate. Why? So that everyone may see your progress. They're going to see your growth spiritually. Your progress should be evident. Your progress should be evident. That, that word progress there is a military term of advancement. 
marching forward. And the idea here, Paul's saying, let it be manifested. And then the last thing we see in verse 16, and man, we've made some ground here. It says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. An excellent pastor, a minister of the faith, perseveres in ministry. And the result is not only salvation for you, but also for others. The idea here is lifelong endurance. Timothy, Paul is saying, where you are, keep what you are doing. Prolong your stay. Plan to stay there in Ephesus. And all these things from verse 6 to 16, these commands, these commitments, they will flourish if there is enduring ministry. I've said publicly that, Lord willing, we would have 30 years here at the Gateway Church. That's my heart. And whether the Lord changes that or, or not, or other things emerge, I don't know. But that's my heart, because I know that when you endure long-term, the, the momentum is significant. Pastors that are in and out every couple years, um, I, I think, is, is hard on the people. And uh, our heart is to be here, and to be here long-term. And I would certainly want to encourage you in that. Reagan, if you could come and just play and just kind of set our hearts before the Lord as we close this morning, first service. Say, what does a pastor do? And I would say, as a pastor, you make the following commitments. And I'm going to make this personal to me. But Pastor Pete, this is important for you. Pastor Bobby, this is critical. But I'm going to make it uh, in the first person for me. That I am responsible to warn people of error. I will devote myself to the study of Scripture. I will avoid the influence of unholy teaching and anything that sucks out my conviction. I will discipline myself in godliness. I will work hard. I will teach with divine authority. I will endeavor to be a model of spiritual virtue. I will maintain a thoroughly biblical ministry. I will employ my spiritual gift and not neglect it. I will be passionate about this privileged work. I will let all, my, all see my growth in grace, and I will persevere with endurance to complete the task that God has given me. It's so important. This little section of Scripture gets us to the end game. And these instructions, I want to say, are not just for me, your pastor. This should be normative in the life of every believer, really. That's the fact. And it's really interesting. I was thinking about it. I remember the first time I felt called into ministry. I was... 11 years old, and it was at a service, uh, a revival-type service, and it was in the second week of that services, and it was in the second week that I felt called, and I remember being at the altar praying, saying, God, I will do anything for you. And I looked back at that, and I came home, and I told my parents, I said, Mom and Dad, I feel like God is calling me into the ministry, 
And just like any proud parent, <laughs> my mom says, and this is no slight to her, she was dead on right. She said, well, that's good. We're all called into the ministry. And she was right, because we all, we're all ministers of the gospel. Not, none of us are more important than the other. That is the truth. But it kind of minimized it, and it wasn't until I was in high school that I remembered the calling. And then from that point on, I asked for confirmation, and it was confirmed, and it's too long to share, and uh, I've never turned back. But, uh, but the idea I want you to know this morning is that we are all ministers. We are all servants. We are all bond slaves for the glory of God. And this list of things and this scripture uh, are important for us to embrace. And you say, well, maybe all of them except the teaching. You know, I, I can't do the teaching. Well, no, the word of God says, be ready to give an account for what and why you believe at any time. And so none of us are off the hook there. Even in teaching. You say, well, what's the response? How, how do we make this mean something and I thought man it's Christmas the Christmas season right and we have an opportunity to live these things out to be a light to the world and so this morning I'm just going to ask a simple question there's a lot of material that we covered in a short amount of time and I understand that but I feel like the Holy Spirit has the ability to speak to each and every one of us. And my question to you is, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? And so with your head bowed and your eyes closed, and I just want this to be a moment with you and the Lord, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? You may be here this morning and you've never given your heart to the Lord, and you need salvation. You need Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior. You may be here this morning and you've been caught up in falsehood and you need a recommitment to be a student of the Word of God or to be disciplined in your life or to really recommit to being a hard worker. You may need to teach with authority or model some spiritual virtue in your life and you're saying, boy, boy if there was a magnifying glass on my life, it would be embarrassing. For some of you, it's the spiritual gifts component that you know that God has gifted you and you've neglected those spiritual gifts. Or maybe it's just a passion that needs a little breath of heaven to fuel that flame in your life. And then I circled in my notes the last thing, that persevering. And I know that at Christmas and during the holidays, it can be a very difficult season for some and for different reasons. But we are called to persevere. We're called to be an example. And so this morning, let's press in. Let's commit our lives and say, God, we're going to do this. We're going to make a difference. We've got an opportunity to be a light, and I'm going to persevere. I'm going to press through. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep on fighting. I'm going to keep on sharing. I'm going to keep on whatever. And I really feel like that could be a word for several people today to keep up the good work, to let your light shine, to be a difference, to make a difference. I just want to encourage you that this is a great season 
to press in to the presence of God and let it shine. Let it make a difference. And uh, it comes by being intentional and taking the risk to share and to be a light to others. Let me pray a prayer of benediction. And then after I do so, I want you to turn and greet one another. And then you can go in the grace of God. But let's pray. Lord, we just pray these things that you would seal them in our hearts. That you would make a significant impression in our lives to live out our lives for you. Lord, I thank you, God, that you are working in our lives and that we're students, we're always learning and growing. And God, we commit our lives to your word and to a disciplined life and hard work. Lord, help us to model spiritual virtue and spiritual gifts. Let the passion burn strong inside of us. And Lord, help us to persevere. And I pray specifically for those that are struggling in that area, Lord, that you would just significantly just encourage them along. Meet them right where they are. We pray it. And now I pray that you'd go before us, behind us, and all around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. We love you. Go in the grace of God.